0: Please note, rewards offered are subject to change or expire. To the author's knowledge, reward amounts are current and valid as of this episode's air date and may be subject to terms and conditions. Please confirm all reward details with the relevant case authority listed in the show notes. Welcome back to Reward Offered. I'm your host, Amanda. And before we get into our next case, just a few show notes I wanted to add. Firstly, my apologies for the delay in this episode. Between work, life in general, my dad having a freak accident at a dog park and almost losing his leg and life, it's been a hectic month since I've released the first four episodes. I was overwhelmed by the response to Lorraine and Wendy's case, and thank you to everyone who has taken the time to listen so far. Also, a huge thank you to the women who have reached out and shared their frightening experiences in the southeast Queensland area. It can't be easy to rehash these stories, but it's the little details of your experiences that can make all the difference and that will give us the best chance to discover any possible links between cases. Thank you for trying to help find answers for the women who weren't so lucky. This episode's case is a shorter one, just because there isn't nearly as much information available on it presumably because it's a more recent one, but the coroner himself indicates in his report that there might also be other reasons for the minimal information. Today's case is the 2018 murder of Mark Russell inside his Surrey Hills unit in Sydney on the weekend of the 24th and 25th of February. The reward offered for information relating to the murder of Mark Russell is $1 million. Let's get into the details. If any of the details of this case cause you distress, please reach out to Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or a relevant crisis support service in your local area. Mark Russell was born to Lloyd and Gloria Russell in January 1964. Mark and his older sister Julie lived in Goulburn with their parents before becoming wards of the state and being placed into foster care. The siblings were never separated and had a close relationship, which is evident still to this day when Julie speaks of the loss of her brother. Mark and Julie lived with a foster family in Wagga Wagga for approximately five years, before moving on to stay with another family in Barmedman. After four years, Mark moved with this family to Thurl, while the older Julie remained in Barmedman. A year later, Mark was residing in a boarding house in the infamous King's Cross. At a later point in time, Mark met a woman named Narelle, with whom he had a son named Shane. Their relationship ended while Shane was still young, and Mark subsequently had another child, a daughter named Abby, with a woman named Melinda. Though after approximately five years, this partnership also ended. At this time, it's said that Mark maintained only intermittent contact with his family. After living in Goulburn for a period, he sadly found himself enduring extended periods of homelessness, before finding long-term residence at a hostel in Wallamaloo. It was in 2016, after almost two decades of living rough, that Mark finally secured permanent accommodation through the Department of Housing and moved into the unit at 10 Clistal Street in Surrey Hills, the same unit where his life would later be taken from him. According to accounts, Mark was a well-liked man who had many friends often visiting with him. In one article, he was described as, quote, "...a strong and vibrant character who had been through tough times in the years prior to his death." But always knew how to bring a smile to friends, family and the local community End quote." Mark had a strong character and was known to wear vibrant outfits, of which you'll see some on our social media. A fervent supporter of the Cronulla Sharks NRL team, Mark had earned himself the nickname "Sharky." At a time when it seemed he was just starting to find his footing again, someone or some ones, robbed him, his family, his friends and his community of the possibilities his future held. I've seen it reported that Mark had just begun reconnecting with his family in the months leading up to his death, making his murder that much more cruel for his loved ones. Police have stated that as far as they're aware, Mark didn't have any ongoing disputes, nor did he owe money to anyone. The $1 million reward for information relating to Mark's death was announced on the 14th of October 2020, the day before the commencement of the coronial inquest into his homicide. Mark's body was discovered inside his unit on the morning of the 25th of February 2018. It's been difficult for authorities to establish a reliable timeline for the days leading up to Mark's death. Reconstructing this timeline has hinged heavily on the memories of friends, neighbours and other individuals who interacted with Mark during that time. But unfortunately, the accounts of many of these individuals, however well-intentioned, have been affected by drug and or alcohol use thus limiting their abilities to recall possibly relevant information with any reliable precision. Many of the residents at the Clisdale Street units knew Mark, and he was considered a good neighbour. Incredibly social, Mark often had visitors to his unit, of whom some would stay overnight or even for longer periods of time. It was common practice for Mark to leave his door open, but with the fly screen shut, which allowed passers-by of the ground-floor unit to see and hear the occupants within. Let's look at the timeline police have established, as per the coroner's report. On Friday the 23rd of February 2018, Mark was visited by a close friend, David Albert, at approximately 8am. Mark wasn't home, though David did see him around an hour later at the Matthew Talbot Hostel in Wollamaloo. At this point, the two men purchased a quantity of wine and returned to Mark's unit at approximately 9.45am. According to David... The two men then remained in Mark's unit, drinking port and wine until around 1am on Saturday the 24th, at which point David returned to his own unit in the suburb of Redfern, about a 10-minute walk away. There are two witnesses that indicate they heard a verbal altercation coming from within Mark's unit during the time frame that David Albert says he was present and drinking with Mark on that Friday. The first witness, a nearby resident named Athol Young, heard the sound of two men arguing for approximately five minutes from the direction of Mark's unit at around 7pm that Friday night. The second witness, Nicholas Katowicz, says he was inside his own unit when he heard a loud argument coming from Mark's between the hours of 8 and 9pm on that same night. Nicholas says that he'd heard many arguments coming from Mark's unit before, but described the altercation in question as one of the loudest and most aggressive of those he'd ever heard. On the following morning, Saturday the 24th of February, at around 7am, a a neighbour of Mark's, Stephen Ward, notices the door to Mark's unit is open. Mr Ward says he hears the voice of Mark as well as the voices of others. Two hours later, at around 9am, another friend of Mark's, Stephen McRoberts, says he saw Mark inside his unit. He spoke to Mark for about 15 minutes and found him to be moderately affected by alcohol at the time of their interaction. At some point between 9 and 10am, David Albert, who had been drinking with Mark the night prior, says he returned to Mark's unit but found he wasn't home. David went to the Matthew Talbot Hostel again to try and locate Mark, but was unsuccessful, and upon returning to Mark's unit once more, again couldn't locate him, so he left. Mark's neighbour, Mr Ward, says he returned to the Clisdale Street units at about 6pm that night finding Mark's door still open and hearing the voices of Mark and others emanating from within. It's sometime later that Mr Ward hears the sound of raised voices coming from within Mark's unit. At around 7 or 7.30 that night, Mark's next-door neighbour, who was also his friend, Rajesh Kumar, says that he saw Mark sitting on his couch drinking wine from a glass. The men exchange greetings, and Rajesh says he saw Mark once more about five minutes later when he passed by as he returned to his unit. In the same time frame, 7 to 7.30, Stephen Ward says he left his unit to go for a walk and again hears the voices of Mark and others from within the unit. However, when returning home about midnight, Stephen says there is no lights on inside Mark's unit and that all is quiet. At approximately 9.30 that night, another Clisdell Street resident... Oh, I'm going to butcher this one. Nelu Romniak? N-E-L-U... Surname R-O-M-N-A-I-U-C. Apologies for however much I butchered that. Uh, left home and saw the front door to Mark's unit was partially open. I'm going to pronounce this Romniak. Mr. Romniak says that at this time, as well as when he returned home a short time later, around 10 pm, he heard the sounds of voices coming from Mark's unit. At around 1:30 am on Sunday, the 25th of February 2018, a Clistal Street resident by the name of Mr Young heard a number of what he described as loud bangs coming from somewhere beneath his unit. At around 3am, another neighbour who lived on the floor above Mark, Michael Muller, says he heard noises coming from Mark's unit. He later left his home before returning once more at what he believes was about 6.30am. Mr Muller says that on his way back to his unit... He looked through the window of Mark's unit and saw someone sitting on the lounge in what he describes as an uncomfortable position. While he believed the person was likely Mark, he wasn't entirely sure. Mark's friend David returns once again to Mark's unit on the Sunday morning around 11am. He says he received no response when he knocked on the window, but upon peering inside, sees Mark lying on a couch with a red pillow on his chest. David says he calls out several times and after again receiving no response, finally enters the premises. Inside the unit, David finds Mark lying on a couch with no signs of life. At this point, David runs next door to notify Mark's neighbour, Rajesh Kumar. Rajesh makes a call to 000 at about 11.10am. Paramedics arrive approximately eight minutes later and find Mark with a penetrating chest wound to his upper left chest congealed blood on his neck, a result of neck wounds, and exhibiting signs of rigor mortis. Police were notified, and Mark was later pronounced dead. So exactly when did Mark die? From the events laid out in the coroner's report, it's evident that a number of individuals were present in Mark's unit at various times over the Friday and Saturday. It also seems likely that more than one altercation occurred within the unit throughout this time frame. According to the coroner, The best evidence seems to indicate that Mark was last known to be alive sometime between 7 and 7.30pm on Saturday the 24th when both Rajesh Kumar and Stephen Ward believe they see Mark alive and well. It's believed Mark was killed prior to 6.30am on Sunday the 25th, the time when Mr Muller believes he saw an individual, presumed to be Mark, lying on the couch. This timeline is most consistent with the reporting of voices from within Mark's unit up until around 10pm on Saturday night, as well as the loud sounds heard by both Mr Young and Mr Muller, seemingly from Mark's unit, in the early hours of Sunday morning. Mark is then found by his friend David at around 11am, seemingly in the same position witnessed by Mr Muller approximately five hours earlier. We know the paramedics arrive on scene at approximately 11.20am. They indicate that at that time there were signs of rigor mortis being exhibited by the body. After death, the lack of oxygen being taken up by the body causes the cessation of aerobic respiration in the cells and leads to a lack of production of adenosine triphosphate, or ATP. Rigor mortis, this stiffening of the muscles post-mortem, is caused by the depletion of the ATP molecules from the muscles in the body. Rigor commences immediately after death and usually progresses in a sequence referred to as the march of rigor. You may have heard that the process starts at the head, and works its way down the body. The reason for this is that while rigour actually occurs simultaneously throughout all the muscle tissue in the body, it's the size of the muscle being afflicted that dictates the perceptibility of the changes. The smaller the muscle, the easier the effect is to see. This is why the smaller muscles of the face, particularly those around the eyes and mouth, are the first to exhibit the effects of the process. Rigour of the facial muscles usually appears approximately two hours after death, Over the next several hours, it then spreads to the muscles of the hands, then upper limbs, followed by the lower limbs. The entire process is usually complete between 6 to 8 hours after the time of death, and remains perceptible until approximately 24 hours after death. At this point, it begins to disappear, following the same predictable pattern through the facial muscles, upper limbs and finally the lower limbs. Rigour will generally have completely dissipated 36 hours after death. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any indication as to what stage of rigor Mark's body is in when he's found. That information could possibly have narrowed the time of death window, if only slightly. Mark Russell's body was taken to the Department of Forensic Medicine and an autopsy was performed by a forensic pathologist. The date listed in the coroner's findings says the autopsy was performed on the 28th of January 2014, which, obviously can't be correct, but the autopsy report is said to be dated the 30th of May 2018 so we can at least say the autopsy was done at some point between the 25th of February and the 30th of May, 2018. Regarding Mark's injuries, I'll give you the official wording and then explain some of the terms, because I personally had to look a lot of this up. As per the coroner's findings, the autopsy listed the following injuries. Two stab or incised wounds on the posterior aspect of the neck on the right, resulting in hemorrhage, stab wounds to the right sternocleidomastoid muscle and right lobe of the thyroid, as well as sharp force defect to the lateral aspect of the 5th cervical vertebrae. 5 stab or incised wounds on the anterior aspect of the neck, in the central aspect and towards the left side of the neck, resulting in stab wounds of the left carotid artery and the left jugular vein. 5 stab or incised wounds to the central and left side of the chest, associated with sharp force injury of the left pectoral muscle and a penetrating injury through the intercostal muscles small superficial incised wounds to the right side of the back and anterior aspect of the left forearm, and a number of incised wounds to the palmar and dorsal aspects of both hands. Now the layman's version. Mark received two stab wounds coming from the right side of his neck, closer to the back. If you put your hand on the right side of your neck, the sternocleidomastoid muscle, which was injured, is the large muscle that you can feel running from just below your ear down towards your collarbone. The thyroid is located just below your Adam's apple on the front of your neck. And yes, men and women both have Adam's apples, it's just they are more prominent in men. Usually. This too was injured on Mark's right side, but was injured from behind. The wording indicates that the blade of the knife also struck the right side of Mark's spine at the C5 vertebrae. This is located about halfway between the base of your skull and your shoulders. The next grouping of wounds are located on the front and left side of Mark's neck. The carotid artery is where you can feel the pulse on the side of your neck, just below your jaw. The jugular is located just behind this, towards the back of the neck. Depending how deep the carotid artery was cut, it's very possible Mark could have bled out in as little as 5 to 15 seconds after the injury was inflicted. The five stab wounds on Mark's chest included injuries to his left pectoral muscle, as well as the intercostal muscles. These are the muscles located between each of your ribs that help stabilise and move your chest wall as you breathe. The location of the superficial wound to Mark's forearm would suggest his arm was up in front of him in a defensive position when the injury was inflicted. He also had cuts to the front and back of both hands, which were also most certainly received while trying to defend himself. Unfortunately, we don't have any bloodstain pattern analysis information from the crime scene, to indicate whether Mark was attacked while on the couch he was found on, or if that's just where he succumbed to his injuries. Nor do we have confirmation if any wounds were inflicted post-mortem. The defensive wounds to the front and back of Mark's hands, and other superficial injuries, indicate he tried to fight off his attacker. It doesn't seem likely to me that with what little information we have, the Mark was sitting on the couch and taken by a surprise attack from behind, and stabbed in the neck and chest, but we also just don't have enough information to form a clearer image of what the crime scene, or the attack itself, looked like. Obviously, his injuries seemed consistent with a frenzied attack and were certainly intended to kill the victim, but the witness account of David Albert saying that there was a red pillow laying on Mark's chest indicates at least a meagre attempt to perhaps delay the discovery of Mark's injuries and death. His killer or killers didn't flee the moment the injuries were inflicted. Someone took the time to place the pillow on his chest. Yet, given the injury to Mark's carotid artery, there would have likely been a large amount of blood present at the scene. There's no mention in the coroner's report of whether the murder weapon is believed to have come from within Mark's unit or if the perpetrator brought it with them. Nor is there any indication of any items or valuables known to be missing from Mark's unit. In her findings, the forensic pathologist... Oh, here we go. Dr. Lorraine Dutois-Princeleau? let's go with that, lists the cause of Mark's death to be multiple stab wounds to the neck and chest. Given the circumstances of the crime, the manner of Mark's death is classified as homicide. The New South Wales Police Force established Strike Force Fletcher during their investigation into Mark's death. The coroner declines to include in detail elements of the police investigation in his findings, citing the reason of a lack of apprehension of any suspect regarding the murder at that time. Basically... It's an open investigation. I do find it interesting, though, that he also indicates it's due to the investigation involving, quote, consideration of information which is of a sensitive nature, end quote, of which I'm obviously unsure exactly what he's referring to, but it caught my attention. The coroner does, however, include a summary of the investigation, indicating that since Mark's death in February of 2018, many experienced and senior New South Wales police investigators had been involved in the case. He indicates the brief of evidence tendered by police contained a large number of witness statements, forensic reports and other documentary and electronic material gathered over the course of the investigation. The coroner notes the investigation having undertaken Extensive canvassing of residents of the Clisdell Street units at which Mark Russell resided, as well as neighbouring residences. Extensive physical canvassing of the Clisdell Street units and surrounding locations review of available CCTV in and around the immediate area, which identified the last occasion Mark was seen on camera walking towards the Ecclisdale Street units at 3.58pm on Friday the 23rd of February. Just a quick side note, here's an example of an inc- inconsistent witness statement in this case. According to David Albert, he and Mark returned to Mark's unit at approximately 9.45 on the Friday morning and remained there together drinking until such time as he leaves for home around 1am. But given the CCTV of at least Mark walking towards the units at 3.58 that afternoon, that can't be accurate. Police also conducted a forensic examination of Mark's unit and other areas within the block of units. Police also used both overt and covert investigative strategies to identify persons of interest. Despite the efforts of the New South Wales Police Force, the person or persons responsible for the death of Mark Russell, a much-loved and greatly missed son father, brother and friend, are yet to be identified. A case complicated by a patchy timeline from witness accounts deemed to be inherently unreliable, as well as a crime scene known to have been frequented regularly by a number of different individuals with legitimate reason to be there, making it challenging for detectives to interpret forensic evidence collected or exclude individuals from the investigation. At the conclusion of the inquest... Magistrate Derek Lee referred the matter back to the unsolved homicide unit of the New South Wales Police Force Homicide Squad for further investigation. New South Wales Police, nor Mark's family and friends, have given up hope that someone out there is willing to help bring closure to Mark's brutal murder and help right this wrong. Has a perpetrator said something to someone in passing, or while under the influence? Given the murder weapon and wounds inflicted, it's very possible a perpetrator would have also sustained some injuries to the hand bearing the weapon. Do you recall an individual having unexplained bruising or cuts to their hand at the time of Mark's murder? Someone is holding the missing piece of the puzzle. If you or someone you know has information that may assist Strike Force Fletcher detectives in solving the murder of Mark Russell, please contact Crimestoppers on 1 800 333 000. The reward for information in this case is $1 million. that's it for today's case thank you again so much to those who have left ratings and reviews and are sharing the podcast on social media please continue doing so you have no idea of the impact of your word of mouth or taking the time to make a post has i was fortunate enough to have uh, my first interview for the podcast on bob raff's true crime binge the other day Uh, that is out now on their feed and that was a direct result of a listener recommendation A very special thank you to Norel. I think it may have been your recommendation of reward offered in the Casefile podcast fan group that a producer saw before contacting me. So just goes to show that what might take you, the listener, just a moment can make a huge difference not just for these podcasts but for the cases we're all trying to increase awareness of. Uh, That interview's out now, so you can check out our socials or Bob's True Crime Binge for that one. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at reward underscore offered and don't forget to join the Facebook group Reward Offered Case Discussions and share what you think. It's still pretty quiet in there but I'm hoping it'll pick up with some more episodes released. I'm really curious to know what people think about these Australian cases. If you want to reach out regarding this case, Lorraine and Wendy's or any other, our email is rewardofferedpod at gmail.com and with that, it's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Mr. Romniak rom Romnate Rum Nike Romnoik. Oh, uh, it's when I pull the headphones out, it stops the recording. Look at that. Learn something new. Like every ten seconds. Oh, I don't have to do that bit. Woo!